Turn your Bibles to 1 John. 1 John, the first chapter. As I was uh, greeting people today, I was um, greeted by someone in jest who said, I see that you've decided to offend a different group of people today. Talking about my tie, you know, and wearing that. If you're visiting with us, I, I switch up. Every few weeks, I try and dress up for the people who like me to dress up a little bit sometimes. Sometimes it's an open collar, and sometimes it's my Fijian Bula shirt or the Hawaiian shirt. And so I've decided I'm going to further offend some people by rolling up my sleeves because I'm getting, I'm getting warm. <laughs> All right. So, anyway, we're in First John, and we're going through it uh, as a series. And the problem with a series of lessons is that uh, each time, each lesson is built on the other one, and I know you're not here the whole time or even remember from week to week what has been said. So I try and back up and do a little review often. And uh, But today I want to do something very, very quickly in a review uh, because I have so much in the body of the text that I want to share with. Uh, but I want to spend, uh, mention three quick things. First of all, a lot of times the Gospel of John and, uh, clarifies the letters of John and vice versa. And I want to give you one example as you do in your own Bible study. As you read 1 John, you may uh, read the Gospel of John. You'll see some connection there. I have a chart here. There it is. First, uh, uh, John chapter 3, and I've, I've put them up here where you can see how they are connected. This is the verdict, he says, in uh, John chapter 3. One of the passages we've looked at, 1 John 1, 5, this is the message. You see the, the similarity there. Light is coming to the world. God is light. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And in, and in him is no darkness at all. Now notice this. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear his deeds will be exposed. And if you remember what I said, walking in darkness isn't mean living Uh, living a life of sin as much as it means a person who is trying to cover those sins, cover their need for God because they don't want their deeds to be exposed. And then later on, he says uh, right after that, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, walks into the light. So what do we do as we walk in the light so that it may be seen plainly? That what he has done has been done through God. Walking in the light means my deeds are exposed. And what good there is, it's been done by God. And I can see what I need to change and what I need to do because I'm walking in the light. Anyway, that's just some food for thought there. Um, A second thing that was asked of me last week, I, I said this sentence, The world sees people as essentially good. And God sees people as essentially bad. And that's a simplification uh, to make a point. And it, I'm going to make this point several times in the, in the lesson. But bottom line, this is what I'm trying to say. The world, which needs to be defined by John, the world, which is those who are not in Christ, they look at, at people and say, you know, people are born good or they're at least born neutral. And our problem is the way society is. That, that's the problem. God, on the other hand, says in the Bible, man is created in my image, which is good, but he walked away from it. He walked into sin. So there's an essential evil in, in each person as we walk away from God. 
and it can only be fixed by God. It's true that there's good in the worst of us. We recognize that and there's bad in the best of us. And so what, what John, I believe, is saying here and what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is that we have a sin problem that can only be fixed by God. The world basically denies a sin problem. There's just some problems, but it's not a sin problem. Last thing, let's look at the, the um, outline of verses uh, 5 through 10. And we, I entitled this whole section, Reality. This is facing reality, facing up to what is true, facing up to what is real. And in verse 5, we looked at this, the reality of God. Who is God? God is light, and we discussed what that meant. The reality of truth, and it's stated in the opposite in that verse. And then the reality of fellowship with God. What is fellowship with God? Verse 7 is, your sins are exposed, and they're purified. That's the reality of having fellowship with God. And then we're going to look at 8, 9, and 10 today, and I won't read those because we're going to go over them. But let's start by looking at the reality of our marred human condition. And if you'll read with me verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And I shared with you before that this, these if statements are suppositional statements. There are statements that are saying, I'm going to say something that will show you how uh, ludicrous this position is. Uh, if you took that position, it would be, it, it's so false, it's so uh, opposite of what, what God says. Suppose we claim that we're not marred by sin, is what John is saying here. The truth of the Bible is this. Our condition, our human condition, is marred by sin. We go all the way back to Genesis, chapter 3. Adam and Eve, in the perfect relationship with God, walk away from God. They sin. Uh, they desire to put themselves in God's place. They wanted to be God instead of letting God be God. And so this desire, from that point on, all of humankind is marred by sin. As we look at this, I think the wording is significant. He says the singular uh, in, in, um, in verse 8, um, if I can see it. Boy, I just went blind. Okay, if we claim to be without sin in the singular there, uh, this means my condition. This is my makeup. This is the way I'm bent towards sin as opposed to sins, my particular sins that I get involved in. This is something we all share in common. All adults, all people who have reached whatever the age of accountability is, we've grown up and we realize we are marred by sin. You might not have a problem with being unkind. And I might not have a problem with being, uh, having selfish ambition. But we're still in the same boat. We still are marred by our particular sins, by sin in general. And as stated in the strongest possible words, it says, sin, in the, in the literal wording of it, sin we do not have. And that, that there's an emphasis on that sin. He's saying, uh, if we say that we don't have sin in general, our, our condition, and that word not is emphatic too. If we say we do not have sin, if this is not my condition... Then that way of thinking, God's truth is not living in us. And this is how the world thinks. This is how the world lives. All people are good. Our problem is society. 
Our problem is poverty. Our problem is lack of opportunity. All these things, we take this good person, they put them in a bad situation, they, they do bad things. And this is rooted way back, but in modern times in Freud's um, psychology, and a lot of the people who studied or came up with theories after that were rooted in, in Freud's basic understanding of the human person. He, they did not believe in God. The, the major psychologists did not believe in God. And so they said, uh, you know, man is basically good. Uh, it's, it's your mother's fault. That's a joke all the time with Freud, but it's true that he blamed other people. It's not your fault. It's someone else's fault. And so the world looks at people and says, you're essentially good. The worldly theory of positive self-image is based in the belief that humans are basically good. Biblically, there is a positive self-image, but it's not based in our own goodness. And we're not going to go there right now. Think this way, he says, in God's truth is not in you. So, where does that leave us in our relationship with God? If I recognize that my nature is marred by sin, then what about standing before a holy God? Where does that leave me there? Guess where we go? Verse 9. Read verse 9 with me. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. When it comes to seeing the stark reality of my sin in the light of God, that's where I'm walking, my human nature wants to run and hide. Isn't that true? That's what Adam and Eve did. Think about Adam and Eve. They hit, they, they sinned, and what did they do? They hid. And they said, you know, they said to, when God came looking for them, they said, we were ashamed, so we hid ourselves. And so that's what we do often. I want to read to you a part of a Puritan prayer. And the Puritan prayers were very observant. They were very honest. They were akin to some of the Psalms in, in many ways, the way they expressed themselves. And I have part of it up here, but I'm going to read a, a longer section. And I think we can all relate to this. He said, I confess my sin, my frequent sin, my willful sin. All my powers of body and soul are defiled. A fountain of pollution is deep within my nature. There are chambers of foul images within my being. I have gone from one odious room to another, walked in a no man's land of dangerous imaginations, pried into the secrets of my fallen nature. I am utterly ashamed that I am what I am of myself in myself. I have no green shoot in me, nor fruit, but thorns and thistles. I am a fading leaf that the wind drives away. I live bare and barren as a winter tree, unprofitable, fit to be hewn down and burnt. And then he asked the question, Lord, dost thou have mercy on me? And the answer is yes. And we see that in this verse here. If we begin to understand who God is, where does John go for that? You should know by now, verse 5. If we begin to go where God is and we begin to look at what he's done for us, and we look at his attitude toward us in that sin, which is love, and John's going to expound on that later on, instead of hiding, we'll run to the light. We'll run to the light with our sins 
instead of running away from the light. Because what the truth of the gospel is, the only place that my sins can be dealt with are at the cross and in God, in the light of God. It can't be dealt with on my own. I have to give them to God. Instead, and so instead of running away from God, we should be running to God with those sins. And notice he says sins here as opposed to sin before. This is speaking of my individual sins, not my nature. I recognize my sinful nature, but I also recognize my personal and individual sins. The word means falling short, missing the mark. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all missed the mark. And we do it on a daily basis. And so, what do I do with my sins? What does the text say? I confess it. I confess it. So, what does this word confess mean? You know, a lot of times we, we get into our minds the definition of a word based on how it's currently used. And that's okay. That's about all we can do. But I want to look closely at what this word confess means. It means to acknowledge. Culturally speaking, we most of the time we think of confession in a biblical or a church setting as someone coming forward at the invitation song. We give an invitation song and they confess sin and we we pray for for them. Nothing wrong with that. All right. You may do that if you if you wish, if you feel the need to. But you need to remember, as John wrote this, they were not sitting in a formal church. There was no invitation song. Uh, there was no going forward. That didn't come till later centuries. That was our practice that came later on. But the word is made up of two words. It's a compound word. And uh, if you're not interested in words, you can go to sleep for just uh, about 30 seconds as I uh, do this and I'll wake you up. All right. But it's, it comes from Latin and Greek. OK, our, our words. Uh, you might not know this. Some of the words you use come from French and Italian and all sorts of words. Our English is mixed up with all, all, a lot of things, but Latin is one of our major sources. And the word confess came from these words, calm, together, fatere, to say. The Greek word, homo, same, lego, to say. And what, the, what it means is this. It means that literally, in both languages, it means the same thing. That I will say the same thing as another, and so to agree in one statement with, to acknowledge, to omit the truth of an accusation. It can be done publicly, of course, but this is not a call to public sin, a confession of sins here. This is a call to be God-centered and not man-centered. This is a call for us to say, God, I'm going to say the same thing you say about my sin. Whatever you say about my sin is what I'm going to say about my sin. That is what confession is. And so we have to say, what does God say? What is God saying about my sin? And this is very important because many of you have in your mind what God, how God views you when you, when you sin. What is God saying about you when you sin? How does God look at you when you sin? Because it's important that you have to confess what he says about your sins, you have to say the same thing. What does he say? First of all, he says you're guilty. I'm sinful in my makeup. I commit sins. I have some scriptures on there. There's a lot that you can put on there. I won't refer to them. Second, only God can deal with your sin. 
Only God can deal with your guilt. This is what God says about your sin. Third, it's only through the sacrifice of Jesus given to us in love by a God who is love that your sins are forgiven. Several passages there. We're going to get to one in chapter two later on of this book. Number four, it's not centered in what I do. There's no boasting on your part. It's all God-centered. When God takes care of your sins, it's because He took care of your sins, not because you did anything to take care of your sins. I'm not talking about your response. I'm talking about what you do for your sins. And five, when I come into Christ, I entered a saved and a saving relationship. I enter a relationship that I am saved from my past sins, and I'm in a saving relationship from my present and future sins. And most people will agree with at least some of those things. They'll say, yes, I'm guilty and I need to fix it. I've heard this many times. I will come to God when I stop doing blank. Fill in the sin. And that's right, Linda, it ain't going to work. <laughs> it's just not, that doesn't work. God says, you can't deal with it. Let me deal with it. That's what God has said. And so, are you going to acknowledge what God acknowledges about your sins? Are you going to say the same thing God says about yourself? I confess this to God. Yes, I am guilty. Only you can deal with it. It's done through Jesus. It's not centered in me. It's centered in you. And when I'm in that relationship in Christ, I am saved. That's what God says. And so, what is His response to that? He says, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins. He is faithful. He will keep his promise. God will not say one thing and then do another. If God says, listen carefully, if God says your sins are removed, if he says they are whitewashed, if he says they're bleached out, washed away, released and thrown into the ocean, as far as the east is from the west, then he is faithful He's not tricking you. He's not remembering your sins when he says, I will remember their sins no more. We do all those things. But God is faithful. All in the Old and New Testament, all these passages, all these things I said were found in the Old and the New Testament over and over and over again. And the question is, do you believe it? Do you rest in God's faithfulness? Second, he is just. You would think the passage would say he is faithful and merciful and will forgive your sins. But he says here he is faithful and just. David Nance brought this to light to me. He helped me with this passage. He is faithful and just. Justice. Justice is seen when he dealt with sin completely in Christ. The Bible is full of that. Look at Romans chapter 3. It says he is both just and the justifier. He justifies you and he's, he, he takes care of sin. He is just. He doesn't let sin slide by. He doesn't say, hey, it's okay. It's just a little sin. All right, that's fine. No, they're all bad sins. And so he's just. He takes care of every single sin and he did it on the cross. He dealt justly with your sins. And if he made you pay a second time, he would be unjust. 
You see what I'm saying? God will not double charge you for your sins. God already charged it to Jesus. God already put your sins on, on the cross. And so, John, speaking to Christians, and I'm speaking to Christians here, he says, if you are in Christ, your sins have been dealt with. He will forgive your sin. He will not double charge you with those sins. But you must acknowledge the same thing that God acknowledges about your sins. You must say, yes, he paid the price with the sacrifice of Jesus. It's according to his righteousness and not my works that I'm now in a relationship with him. And I'm having my sins continually purified because of the blood of Jesus. You have to acknowledge the same thing that, Jesus, that God acknowledges. And then we go to the third point, verse 10. The reality of sins and the re- revelation of his word in our lives. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in my life. Remember, this is a suppositional statement again. He's saying, look at this. If you thought this way, isn't it ridiculous to think this way? He says, uh, he says it in a tense that I won't get into the grammar part, but he's, what he's saying is you're, you're talking about something in the past that has present consequences. You're looking in the past at past actions and you're looking at present consequences of that. So you look back in your life, you look back over your life and you really don't see sin there. Suppose you were to say, as you look back over, over your life, oh, I haven't done too many bad things. Uh, I'm a pretty good person. I have positive self-image. I'm good. You know, that's what everyone told me. So I'm a good person. God says your heart always is bent toward evil. Suppose we say no one is evil. Suppose we say everyone is basically good. That's something we want to believe. But God says it's not true. Get mugged once. You'll find out how untrue that is. Speak from personal experience. But you don't even have to get mugged. Just look at the news. Look at the news over and over, and you can see the evil in the world. It's there every day in front of you, over and over again. And God's bottom line is this. He says in his word that mankind has a sin problem that needs to be taken care of and only I can take care of it and the world says the opposite. It's okay. No, we just need to, we need to just have this program and everything will be okay. Have this educational program and everything will be okay. And God says, no, the bottom line is this. It's sin. Sin has to be taken care of. It's a choice of whom we will believe. Where are we going to place our faith? We want to say, you know, I'm a pretty good person. And yet every killer, when, they're, when, when people are interviewed about them, and, and they grew up with them and they knew them, they say, you know, he was a nice person. Have you, have you noticed that? Or, yeah. You know, someone who, is, who kills two, three, four, twenty, whatever. And, and people that they knew would be interviewed and say, you know, he was such a nice person. I don't know what happened. The Bible tells us he wasn't a nice person. He was a sinful person. He need, that needed to be taken care of. The truth is you and I are marred by sin. And we can do nothing in our own power to remove the evil from ourselves. That's the truth according to God's word. John says deny that. You're living outside of what God has declared to be a fact. 
You'll stumble through life because you'll live according to your truth and society's truth instead of God's truth. So this whole section from verse 5 on is, it asks the question, what's real? Or another way of asking it is, what is truth? And it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to ask those questions. It's uncomfortable for Christians often to face up to that. God, he, he exposes sin. He takes care of sin. He, the way he views you, all those things, that's real. That's truth. And it's true whether you feel it or not. I find there's two extremes there. Some people say, you know, I don't have that much of a problem. You're getting down on me a little bit here. I, I, I can deal with my problems. And they're a little bit offended when someone says, you have more than a problem. You're in sin. You are rebellious to God. I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery. I've never stolen. I've never. The little sins put Jesus on the cross too. The other extreme I see, and maybe even more, is, yeah, I am aware I have a big problem. I am a very, very simple person. They get down on themselves. They get depressed. Oh, I don't see how God can even love me in the condition I'm in. And so they go to one extreme or the other. But God says in love and in truth that, yes, you have a sin problem. And, yes, I can take care of it. The only answer that God has has been shown to me through Christ that he does love and he does forgive a sinner like me. So I accept it. I live in that. I walk in the light. I walk in the light of my own failures, my own sins. And that's faith. And that's trust. I want to read you a passage in Numbers. You know, that's in the Bible. Right near the beginning. And there's a blessing there. Numbers chapter 6. And this blessing was to physical Israel. But... Spiritual Israel, which is the church, it's, it's, it comes to a greater fruition in spiritual Israel. Everything, every promise of God is yes in Christ. And so this promise is yes in Christ. And it's uh, the Aaronic blessing, the priestly blessing. And he says in verse 23, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. And he says, say, say to them these things. And each one of these, there's three, there's three statements and couplets. There are two, two statements in each one. And we can have a sermon on each one. So I'm not going to go through them because I'll stop and start talking about them. But the first one says, the Lord bless you and keep you. I wish I could tell you some stuff about that. But because I want to go to verse 25, though. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. What does that mean? Notice each of these blessings starts with the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Guess what? It's God-centered. It's not man-centered. It's not when you do these things, then the Lord will bless you. But the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, each one of these. So the first thing is God-centered, not man-centered. I know I've said that over and over, but we're going to keep on saying all the way through 1 John is God-centered, not man-centered. The Lord, make his face to shine upon you. What does it mean to make his face to shine upon you? When 
when you came into the fellowship today, some of you were greeted by some others with a light, a shining face. Did, did any of you have that when, when you caught eyes with someone, their eyes brightened and they smiled when they saw you? Nobody? <laughs> yeah, okay, we got a few there. Yeah. The Lord, they, they're, 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 their face lit up. They beamed when they saw you. That's what this is saying. The Lord's face glows when He sees you. It brightens up. His eyes open up. The Lord make. He does it. He doesn't do it when you do something else. He's not frowning at you. And when you start being good, then His face will shine. The Lord makes His face. It's His initiative. It's His doing. This is Him doing this. His face shines upon you. And that upon means toward you. Going on you, yes, but toward you. A continuous coming toward you. The Lord makes His face to shine upon you. He smiles at you is another way of saying it. Oh, we all know God loves you. But we all also know I can love your brother, but I don't have to like you. Have you ever heard that? <clears throat> God likes you. Mm. Do you believe that? God likes you? Oh, yeah, the Bible says God loves you. But His face isn't going to shine towards you if He doesn't like you. He's not going to smile at you unless He likes you too. The Lord make His face shine upon you. And then right at the end there it says, So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. If you've been with me for any length of time and you've been listening, you know what that word name means. The Lord will put His name on you. The word name there in all of the Bible means His character. This is how God places His character on you. The way He is on you. This is how you can become like Him. Ephesians 5 verse 1 says, You imitate God. This is how you do it. He makes His face to shine on you. When you start realizing the God that you're serving likes you, you will change your life and you'll start becoming like Him. You see, our problem is our view of God. Many of us have a view of God with a billy club. Smacking in his hand waiting for something to happen. And he's going to whack you. He is waiting for you to do the wrong thing and the lightning bolt's going to come down. You sinned and he turned away from you. Adam and Eve sinned and he turned away. He ran away from them. He can't stand to be in the presence of sin. Read the Bible. What did he do? He went and found them. He went and looked for them. He knew where they were. They just need to know where they were. God went to them. It wasn't that when you sin, God turned his back and he's sitting there waiting. I just can't wait to just destroy them all. And Jesus said, please, God, please let me go down there. Let me fix the problem. Okay, you go down there, fix the problem. And if you don't fix the problem fast, it's going to be some, there's going to be some action. That's not God. Boy, another sermon's coming. <laughs> Ephesians. This is His good pleasure and His will. This is what God wants to do. And He's pleased to do it in your salvation. 
You will become like the God of your imagination. Whatever you think about God, that's how you're going to become. And it can be a false imagination or it can be a biblical imagination. Biblical, true biblical thought. The image of your mind. Do you believe God smiles at you? Do you believe when you came in today that God is happy with you? His face lit up. Not just coming here. If you're in bed, for those of you who are listening to this tape, and you missed today because you were lazy, God still likes you even though you're there. He wants you to come, yeah. When we face the reality of God's nature as opposed to our nature and accept how He values us and removes our sin, then in faith we'll make this our reality and we'll take on the very nature and character of God. Let me read our paraphr- the paraphrase I have written that hopefully will help clarify and bring this all together. From verses 5 through 10. I did this to just help us expand and see what it says. This is the news, the good news we heard from and saw in the life of Jesus, who is the complete and true revelation of what real life is. Now we ring out this declaration that he, with all authority, commissioned us to proclaim, God is light. In him there is not the slightest speck of darkness. Now, suppose we tell everyone we have a partnership, a communion and relationship with God who is light. And yet we live our lives covering up and hiding, keeping out what God's purity and holiness exposes in our lives. Well, we are lying to ourselves and we do not live in the open and revealing light of God. But if we live our lives in the open exposure of God's light, His glorious light that penetrates and shows us who we are. That partnership, communion, and relationship with God exist. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, continually whitewashes and cleanses and takes away absolutely all sin in our lives. Now, suppose we say that our human nature is not marred by sin. Say that and your life is going down the wrong path and you won't have a clue where or who you are. You're not living a life in the open and revealing light of God. But the ones who acknowledge their sins and who say the same thing about their sins as God says about their sins, and he makes that clear as the day at noon, will discover that he is true to his word. He will not double charge those sins to your account. He will release and let let our sins go and will completely erase every stain of sin which has placed you in a wrong relationship with him. Suppose even further we look back on our lives and say, I really haven't done anything that bad. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Say that, and you're saying, God, you're a liar. Then it's true word that reveals who you are and gives your life direction and purpose and clarity and confidence will not be a daily reality, but instead you'll stumble through life as if what he has told you is not true. Y'all ready to go to chapter 2? Next week. All right. (laughs) Because we get into the second purpose of this letter. The first purpose, do you remember? Anyone remember what the first purpose of this letter is? What? What? There you go. That your joy will be overflowing. 
Chapter 1, verse 4. Does this make your joy overflowing when you begin to understand who God is and what He's done for you? And how He takes care of your sins? Your, your joy should begin to overflow. If you're in Christ, that's true. If you're not in Christ, that's not true. We want you to be in Christ. Last week, four people came to Christ and were buried with Him in baptism. Their sins are washed away. They are walking in the light right now. They don't have to worry about those sins anymore in the past and, the, and what they did this past week. God's taking care of them. Boy, we want that for you too if you're out of Christ because your only hope is in Christ. Next week, we're going to look at the second purpose. Anyone remember what that is? We haven't got there yet, but I told you before. That you will not sin. That you will not sin. This is the second purpose. So if this good news has made you think, ah, now I can go and do this sin because God will forgive me, you missed 1 John. All right? And we're going to talk about that next week. If you're not a